Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel, as always. And as impartial as we try to be during these episodes, I won't be able to do that during this one because my team is actually involved in an episode, which is incredibly rare. Yeah, and that was one thing that we touched on in our, I guess, prologue to Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series, is that you know, both of us being from Chicago and rooting for opposite uh, teams the entire way. We really only had one time where we come into conflict. That one's already done. And really, we don't have a lot of opportunities for our own teams to begin with. So I don't blame you at all for, you know, I don't even want to call you biased or anything here, but it's, you know, I don't blame you for looking forward to this one. So this will probably rank either second or third episode I am most looking forward to. The one I'm most looking forward to is going to come much later on, like almost two years from now. It's going to happen, which says the state of my team, the Chicago White Sox. And they are making their first World Series appearance in 1917 since 1906 when they beat the Crosstown Cubs. And why wouldn't they make the World Series with such a dominant crew made up of an infield that included Buck Weaver, Sweet Risberg, Eddie Collins, Chick Gandel, and then the outfield you had Shoeless Joe Jackson, Nemo Leibold, Happy Felsch, and you had reserve outfielder Shannon Collins providing depth, and then of course you had that great rotation of Eddie Seacott, Red Faber, Lefty Williams, and Hall of Fame catcher Ray Schalk. They took over first place in July and steadily built their lead from there. And even Babe Ruth, the big pitching star for the Red Sox, was not able to keep the Red Sox in contention. They won 100 games for the first and only time in franchise history. And they won it by nine games. So, you know, you've got some people who are just unbelievable at their jobs. You know, by the way, also pitching Rep Russell, Jim Scott... Uh, they, along with Faber and Seacott, had ERAs of under two. And having all these players do well on the hitting front as well, Felsch had a 308 batting average, which was good for fifth in the American League. Jackson had a 301 average and 17 triples. So, not the most talented group of players ever assembled on a baseball team, but definitely good enough for that year. Well, and everybody kind of all putting it together at just the right time. The 1917 White Sox had a combined staff ERA of 216 for the year, which is pretty darn impressive. They struck out uh, just a hair over 500 guys combined. Seacott leading the way with 150 that year, a sub one whip in the regular season as well. And when you've got a guy like that leading your staff and no slouches anywhere else looking down this rotation... This is a pretty strong thing, and we've been seeing through the progression of this podcast that so far the American League, for the most part, has been has had the upper hand. And it sure looks like, at least on paper for the moment, that that may be the case again here. So Collins, we have talked about before, and that's because he was previously with the Philadelphia Athletics. You might remember a couple episodes back, we talked about how 
after the A's lost their last World Series that they were in to the young, well, I don't know about young, but definitely unexpected champion, the Boston Braves, Connie Mack sold off pretty much everybody of value. And Collins went to the White Sox for $50,000, which was the highest price ever paid for a player up to that point. And the first of only three times that a reigning MVP was sold or traded, the Sox paid Collins $15,000 in 1915. Only Ty Cobb and Trish Speaker were paid more at that point. And Collins definitely was worth the money in 1917 because he had 289 average, 18 doubles, 12 triples, and 67 RBIs. His salary was more than three times higher than the majority of the Sox regulars. And we talked about Jackson's 301 average and 17 triples. He also had 20 doubles, five home runs, and 75 RBIs. So, again, players were definitely doing everything that they could to get the White Sox to the pennants, and they won it by nine games. We talk about Eddie Collins again a little bit. So looking back through his career World Series numbers to this point, you know, we mentioned that he won three titles with the Philadelphia Athletics before that uh, complete shutdown in the 1914 series. And he had pretty good numbers. A 347 batting average in four World Series spanning 20 games with the Philadelphia Athletics. So definitely no slouch. Had a couple series where he hit over 400. So you've got a ton of experience with Collins here adding on to that. And we should talk about the National League entrance. No strangers to the Fall Classic at all. John McGraw's New York Giants are back only two years after finishing in last place. And we have to talk about some of these newbies on the Giants. John McGraw's new offense included Walter Hulk at first base. You had Heine Zimmerman, who was the NLRBI leader with 102 George Burns scored 103 runs to lead the National League. Dave Robertson had a National League high 12 home runs. And they led the National League with 635 runs. The Giants also allowed the fewest runs in the NL with 457. Ferdy Shop won 21 games against seven losses. And he has 750 winning percentage as a result of that. He was one of four Giants starters who won more than 15 games. In fact, three Giants pitchers made up the top five in the ERA leaders. You had Anderson at a buck 44, Paul Parrott at 1.88, and Shup at 1.95. And that is a team that is worthy of playing in the Fall Classic. Definitely not the Giants team that we're used to talking about, but. Just an example of time marching on. Yeah, a 227 team ERA for the Giants in 1917. Fred Anderson had a sub one whip as well. So this is definitely new faces, but you still have a John McGraw led team, and that's got to count for something. Yes, and whether or not they're able to keep that up in the World Series, we're about to find out. And the White Sox having 100 games, they were considered slight favorites going into this and why not especially since the first two games are going to be at Comiskey Park in Chicago Southside Park is no longer a thing at least not in the sense that we have talked about before and Comiskey Park is in of course it would eventually go on to become the oldest ballpark in the majors until it was eventually torn down after the 1990 season but in game one 
It was Seacott, Felsch, and Jackson as the heroes for the Sox. Seacott pitched one run, seven hit ball against the Giants. Felsch hit a home run deep into the left field bleachers. And Jackson made a diving catch with a runner in scoring position to preserve a 2-1 to one Sox win. So already you're getting all three elements combining to give the White Sox the victory, pitching, fielding, and offense. Definitely a good effort from that. Uh, the White Sox getting a couple runs on seven hits. Went one for six with runners in scoring position. Only left three guys on base. The uh, Giants, by comparison, one for four with men in scoring position. They left five. A good pitcher's duel here. A nice two-to-one game that took just an hour 48 in front of 32,000 at Old Comiskey Park. Shell Collins, by the way, has three hits. And in game two, you have Red Faber on the mound and he scared eight hits in the 7-2 victory for the Sox. And he also had the most comical moment in the series because in the fifth inning, he stole third base only to find it already occupied by Buck Weaver. And Faber, to his absolute embarrassment, was tagged out. Now, granted, I don't know how much pitchers put into their hitting at that point since they were expected to hit, but still... You'd think that base running, arguably the easiest thing that a baseball player could do, whether you're a hitter or a pitcher, would have just come natural to him. And it probably did with him being a professional player, but obviously he had some sort of a brain fart on that moment. Definitely call that one a toot, Bland. And I'm just, I'm wondering, like, did they miss a sign here? Or was he just not aware of the situation, figured that the guy that was at third didn't advance? I I don't know. Well, all we do know is the White Sox took care of business in their own park on October 6th and 7th, and even 32000 apiece for those first two games, so nice turnout on the south side. It makes me wonder if they just estimated those numbers, because it's pretty rare that you see, especially a couple games in a row, numbers that even being reported for attendance. So to me, there's no way, and it was probably estimated. You know, still definitely a great crowd, but I get vibes of, uh, let's kind of eyeball and estimate. Yeah, it's like nobody knows exactly how many people were on the Titanic. We just have estimates, because that was at a time before everybody was fully registered and before computers. So I know I'm talking about something that happened five years earlier, but I've always been fascinated by how many pastors were actually on the Titanic. Sure. So we move on to game three to the polo grounds. The Giants are down two to nothing and they get right back into the series because Ruth Benson, a left-hander, used his drop ball to pitched the Giants to a 2 to nothing victory. And according to Baseball Magazine, he quote-unquote pitched the game of his life, blanking Comiskey's men with almost pathetic ease. And he gave up five hits in this one. The Giants got the only two runs that they needed in the fourth inning. So the Giants are on the board in this series, and they really didn't need to do much. You got two hits apiece from Eddie Collins and Buck Weaver in this game. Happy Felsch had the other hit for the White Sox in this one, and there just there really wasn't anything they could do. And you can't really blame defense too much on this one. The White Sox committing three errors in this one, but none of those three really playing, as in that bottom of the fourth you went Dave Robertson triple, Walter Holke double to give them the only run they would need. 
sack bunt, strikeout, and then George Burns with an infield single back to the mound. And the way they scored this, they scored it a single on a ground ball to the pitcher with Holkey scoring. Burns was able to advance to second on a throwing error by Seacott, and it sounds like just based on what ended up happening with the way they scored it, the run scored. So I don't know if it was just the throw was late, they didn't think they had enough time to get him or what the case was, but in an era where we've been making memes about defense, it doesn't sound like that was the case here, and that was all Rube Benton would end up needing. Trust me, that's not the last time we're talking about defense in this episode. So we go to game four. Yo, what's that they say? If you just succeed the first time, do it again. See if you can get success a second time. And that's exactly what McGraw got. He threw another left-hander. This time it was Shup in game four. And he was in the best season of his 10-year major league career. And we get another shutout of the White Sox. This one to the tune of five to nothing. And Koff gave the Giants most of their offense in this one. He hit two home runs, one to the right field stands, and the other an inside the parker that went over Felsch's head in center field. So both teams are taking care of business in their home parks, and as a result, we are tied up at two apiece. Yeah, the Giants ended up missing out on another run. You had Holkey thrown out at home to end the fifth inning after Robertson had scored on the same play. So... They were able to take advantage still of the opportunities, and a good job so far. The home teams have been able to hold serve. So if you're the White Sox, you still have to feel okay because it's all right. We know we have a couple more coming up at Comiskey. So, you know, worst case scenario, we hold serve at home and we win. And, you know, I think this is the first instance that we're seeing, Lucas, of teams going back to back in a couple of different ballparks. And, We haven't really seen a whole lot of the home team consistently taking care of business through the first four games of the series. And as we get further into the podcast, we're going to see examples of home teams winning all the games. And in one example coming much later, we'll see a road team win every game in a series. But it is really nice to see that at a time when home field advantage probably doesn't mean a whole lot compared to some of the circumstances that would happen later on. It's nice to see that the players and the managers, the coaches are making their own fans happy in their own park. But of course, that means one team is going to have to lose. And the question now is, is a team going to slip up in their own park? Yeah, that's a good question. So we go to game five. We go back to Chicago. We have really cold conditions going on and the Giants looked like they had this game sewn up because they were up four to one entering the sixth inning but the Sox came back to win eight to five Collins Jackson Felsch the heart of the Sox order did much of the damage and McGraw was criticized in the media because Slim Sally his starting pitcher was allegedly left in the game too long because he gave up eight runs and 13 hits. The question posed by the press, at least one writer, was, when your pitcher is getting dumped steadily, savagely, and harder every inning, why hold him when your lead is growing less every minute? Sounds a lot like a criticism we see of a lot of managers these days, especially during the regular season when a pitcher allegedly has gone on for too long. So maybe this is kind of the start of where thoughts start to turn a little bit because definitely you look at this where you have the White Sox down three going into the seventh. That's five to two at this point. 
and Sally is able to get the first guy and then gives up single to Jackson, single to Felsch. Chick Gandel doubles both of them home. You get a ground out, so you've got two outs then. Saley walks Ray Schalk. Lefty Williams, who had been pitching for the White Sox, gets pinch hit four. Bird Lynn comes up, and the tying run scores when Ray Schalk goes to steal second, and you have an error on the second baseman that allows Gandel to score, and all of a sudden you're tied. Lynn ends up striking out and ends up not mattering. But you figure at this point, and now granted it's the 2-3-4 part of the order that was up for the Giants in the 8th, they go down 1-2-3, but you'd have to at least think about, well, my pitcher was getting hit fairly hard there in the 7th. Why trust him, especially then when you give up a leadoff single to start the 8th, and then, like you mentioned, it's that middle of the order of Eddie Collins with the go-ahead single, Shoeless Joe Jackson knocks in an insurance run, with some help from a throwing error on the third baseman, and then Happy Felsch adding a third insurance run off of Paul Parrott, who finally comes in to relieve Slim Sally. Yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely make the argument that this was too late to make that move. Red Favor, by the way, gets the win after pitching two innings of scoreless relief. And of course, he benefited from being the pitcher of record when the Sox scored those three runs in the bottom of the eighth. And Faber gets the start for game six. We go back to New York for this one. And the Giants are going to wish that this game never, ever happened. And I'm going to explain why. Faber was pitching on short rest, obviously, having won game five. The White Sox scored three runs all they would need in the fourth inning thanks to several New York defensive mistakes. So first you had Heine Zimmerman with Eddie Collins at the plate committing a throwing error and Collins went all the way to third when Robertson dropped Jackson's fly ball. Felsch then grounded back to the pitcher who threw the third base to trap Collins in a rundown. Zimmerman threw the ball to Bill Rares, the catcher, who threw it back to Zimmerman, and Collins kept on going back and forth, back and forth. But then Collins, who was known for his clever base running, he was somehow able to slip right past Raritan and run toward home. And nobody was covering the plates, and the slow-footed Zimmerman had no choice but to run after Collins and chase him right across the plate. That accounted for the first run of the game, and the Sox would never relinquish the lead. And for the first time since 1906, the White Sox are world champions. And all because of a defensive breakdown on the Giants' part. And granted, there was still time left in the game anyway. But since the Sox scored three runs in that inning, and the Giants were only able to score two in the bottom of the fifth inning and then never scored again, that is the play that people who remember this series would remember forever. Yeah, that's definitely the case here. And to have been able to be at the polo grounds to see that play unfold is crazy to me. So yeah, you had on that play in question, Heine Zimmerman trying to chase Eddie Collins and Bill Reardon had run up the third baseline to start a rundown expecting either Rube Benton or Walter Holke to cover the plate and neither one of them moved. And I don't know to what degree this sort of thing was practiced at the time, but instead now you have the meme of Heine Zimmerman trying to chase him down, which then 
causes some issues pop up of you know Zimmerman now facing allegations a little while down the line of hmm was that done on purpose or not although from sources at the game it sounds like he was only a step or two behind Eddie Collins with Collins sliding across the plate and Zim jumping over him to avoid running over him with his spikes and there's a quote that was attributed to Zimmerman but was actually invented by a writer some years later who supposedly claimed that uh, when this incident happened that Zimmerman had the quote of who the hell was I supposed to throw to Clem referring to the umpire who was working the plate it's so strange that there were nine errors committed in game five and it did not seem very consequential and yet all of these Giants errors turned out to be consequential and just thinking about this play by Collins it kind of makes me wonder if the inspiration for a couple of scenes in the Sandlot with Benny the Jets Rodriguez being caught in rundowns during games and using his feet to eventually score a run and I don't know everything that went into the creation of Benny the Jet Rodriguez's character but you could make an argument considering that that movie took place over 40 years after this series that you know maybe players like Collins maybe not Collins himself but players like Collins would be the inspiration for a childhood movie character of ours I don't think it's unfair to make that comparison I don't know if we'll ever get the answer to that question but here's what we do know Zimmerman was the absolute goat of this he would become what Bill Buckner, Steve Bartsman, and a whole host of other characters in baseball history would become in later years. The New York Times calls the botched rundown, quote-unquote, one of the stupidest plays that has ever been seen in a World Series. Meanwhile, Baseball Magazine called it the greatest bonehead play of all time. And, of course, we've already covered this. It wasn't even his fault because there was no way for him to throw the ball to. But then you also look at the rest of his performance in the series. He hit a buck 20 and had two errors. And, you know, it may have been bad enough for him to be considered the villain anyway. You know, his bone play, as it was called, it was pretty much the only thing anybody talked about. One writer called it the worst played series in the history of the annual classic. And to write that, I'm pretty sure it was that play that pushed said writer over the edge. Oh, I'm I'm 100% sure. But it's funny, though, too, when you look. So I have baseball reference page up for the 1917 World Series. And so they've got a couple advanced stats. And I don't know how they calculate this, but they've got win probability added for an offensive player. And the, so this is bearing in mind just offense. And then championship win probability added for offensive player. So Heine Zimmerman's numbers for the 1917 World Series, his win probability added was negative 0.5. So his presence indicated basically half of a game lost for the Giants. And in terms of that championship probability added where a change of plus or minus 100% indicates one World Series win added or lost, he was at negative 20%. So he accounted for a pretty significant chunk of this. And that's just at the offensive side based off of reading this. That doesn't take into account the two errors plus this defensive play that we keep talking about that wasn't entirely his fault. Well, no, it wasn't his fault. And 
like you talked about, we don't know how often teams practice these rundown situations. Obviously, it's much more common now because we see it so often, but... And I don't know how often rundowns happens during this era of baseball. I'm sure they happen quite a bit because it's a play that's as old as the game itself pretty much. But still, you have to think that if you're going to be a professional ball player, you have to consider the possibility that this could happen at any point, especially if the stakes are raised. But again, credit to Collins for thinking on his feet and using his athletic skill to get out of that rundown and score the, I guess you could say, series clinching run at the moment, if not officially. It's a real tribute to what he was able to do. He was baseball smart and smart's often get you what you want, which is to win a World Series. And Collins, he had a 409 batting average in this series. I think you could make the argument that he and Red Faber with his three wins, that you could make the case that they would be co-World Series MVPs had this taken place. As I was looking through numbers for this, that was kind of my thought as well of, do you take the guy who won three games or do you go with a co-MVP situation and give it to both Seacott and Faber considering the two of them combined to throw 50 of the 52 White Sox innings pitched Dave Danford throwing one inning with an ERA of 18 Lefty Williams throwing one inning with an ERA of 9 and Reb Russell who did not record an out and thus has an ERA of infinite for the 1917 World Series which is hilarious anytime I see it Let's also note one other thing, too, as we had the only World Series appearance in the career of a pretty well-known athlete of the day, Jim Thorpe, played in one game of this World Series. He made an appearance, uh, was listed in the lineup card starting in right field in Game 5 for the New York Giants, but... His turn at bat in the top of the first, he was replaced by the lefty Dave Robertson. You're right. That's exactly what happened. He was listed as a starting lineup as a starting right fielder for game five, but he was replaced by Robertson before the game, and he never played, and he would never see another World Series opportunity. And they say that he didn't stick around in baseball because he couldn't hit a breaking ball. But don't feel too sad for Thorpe. He would, of course, have much greater success in football and setting Olympic records. But still, it's just so crazy to think that Jim Thorpe, maybe the greatest all-around athlete who ever lived, is basically Moonlight Graham when it comes to World Series history. Well, and let's note, too, as I look at Thorpe's numbers, so his first three years in Major League Baseball. He played for the Giants in 13, 14, and 15. Not a ton of plate appearances. And then in 1917, he had a four-game stint with the Giants, a 77-game stint with Cincinnati, and then a separate 22-game stint with the Giants again. And for a guy who supposedly couldn't hit a curveball, he still hit 252 for his career. 20 doubles, 18 triples, 7 home runs, so uh, not really a slouch at the plate. Right, and again, as far as World Series history goes, I mean, at least Moonlight Graham actually got to play an inning defensively. Thorpe never even saw the field officially, even though he was listed as the starting right fielder for the Giants. So, again, he did enough in his career that I don't think he regretted it too much. But getting back to uh, some of the other figures in here, Collins, we mentioned his 409 batting average. He also had three stolen bases. He scored four runs. Buck Weaver hits 333. 
Joe Jackson, 304. So I guess you could say a lot of the would-be Hall of Famers did their jobs. Yeah, 100%. Joe Jackson, 7 of 23, scored four runs. Happy Felsch scoring four. Eddie Collins with nine hits, scored four runs, knocked in a couple. The guys that the White Sox needed to show up showed up, and it resulted in them getting a championship. Yes, it did. And I do want to mention one other player, Buck Herzog, the second baseman for the Giants. Compared to the hitting antics of Collins, he had a 583 OPS, a slash line of 250, 250, 333, was 6 of 24. Did have one triple and two RBIs, but years later, John McGraw would confide to friends that he thought Herzog had played so poorly that he might have bet against his own team. But hmm. why would that happen? I can't imagine why. And surely this sort of thing wouldn't come up again, would it? I don't know. And I think that we might have to dive a little bit deeper in a couple of episodes to see if this may or may not be happening, possibly with one of these teams that we're discussing here in this episode. Hmm, the plot thickens. Yes, but in our next episode of 1918, that is not going to happen. Instead, we're going to get the other Chicago team and the other Sox team in the World Series in a world that has been ravaged by the First World War, and the First World War is going to alter how this series is played. So, what's going to happen in this one? We don't know, but... I guess you could say this will be a tune-up to this really big episode that we're going to have after that. And I'm not trying to play down this next episode that we're going to have. It's going to be interesting in its own right, but... And have some significant historical impact as we go through our future episodes over the next couple of years. We can't leave that part out. So, this is going to be a very interesting next couple of weeks. Indeed. So in the meantime, be sure to subscribe, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. For Lucas Mitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you so much for listening to the 1917 episode. Then there were two, a history of the World Series. We will see you next time for the first of a couple of very interesting episodes. Episode 